The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Today's reading is Matthew um, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, Oh, I realized, okay, said to him, um, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then the Lord said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. That's the word of the Lord. Please go ahead and be seated. Well, hey, very often in the Christian life, we when we experience something like a spiritual high, um, it's, it's often, it can be often followed by something like a spiritual attack. Uh, or to put it another way, a spiritual success or a spiritual victory followed by a spiritual test, resulting sometimes, if we're honest, in a spiritual failure. Progress gained followed by a counterattack. I've experienced this, and I'm sure that Many of you have experienced this as well. And if you can relate to anything like that, Jesus can relate to you. We're going to be talking about temptation this morning, Jesus' temptation, and yours. And the context for our passage that came right before it was Jesus' baptism. Remember that from, from last week? Jesus had gone to John to be baptized And uh, we read how when he came up out of the waters, right, the the heavens opened up. Man, I wonder what that looked like. And the, the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove and rested upon him. I wonder what that felt like. And then he heard the voice from heaven speak out over him, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. I wonder what that sounded like in the soul. <laughs> it was a spiritual high, to say the least. But you know, the very next thing we read of is chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. A spiritual high, see, followed by spiritual attack. There's a lot of hurdles for us here in the text this morning. I just want to take a couple moments here and acknowledge some of them. First, one of the things that we believe about ourselves, this might be a hurdle for you, one of the things that we believe about ourselves because the Bible teaches it's true about ourselves is that we're sinful. Even Christians, every single person in this room, Christian or not, 
is sinful. Now, as Christians, we don't make peace with our sin. We're not complacent about our sin. We war against our sin. We acknowledge our sin. We seek to experience godly sorrow over our sin. We confess our sin. We repent, which means turn from sin. And we fight sin in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. We seek to sin less. And we'll have to do that for the rest of our lives. No one here is sinless. Over time, Lord willing, this, and this looks different in, in all of us to different degrees and, and whatnot, uh, but over time, we sin less, but we never reach sinless. Not in this life. And what that means is that we all still face temptation. It's not all champagne and strawberries in this Christian life. <laughs> Every single one of us in this room faces temptation. Additionally, and this is the second hurdle, it's right here in verse 1, but Christianity teaches the real existence of a spiritual enemy. The devil, it calls him. The tempter, verse 3. Satan, verse 10. We believe that Satan is real because the Bible teaches that Satan is real. And we believe that he brings temptation into our lives. Now, he's not the only source of temptation, The world and our flesh present temptation as well, but so does he. And if that's a hard one, you know, and if you don't believe that, um, I know it's hard, and if we had more time, we'd spend a lot more time talking about him in particular today, but if you don't believe that, I just kindly suggest that you may be spiritually naive. I don't mean that as a put down in any sense of the term. Um... But if you don't believe in a spiritual enemy, you're spiritually naive and as a result, vulnerable. Vulnerable. Now we also believe in the sovereignty of God. This may be a third hurdle for you. What it means is that we believe that God is in control of everything, including Satan. God does not allow anything to come into our lives save for that which he permits, including Satan. Temptations from the devil. Notice in the text, even with Jesus, it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, who leads Jesus into the wilderness. Why? To be tempted, it says, by the devil. So the Spirit took him out there. The Spirit took him out there for a purpose. What was the purpose? To be tempted by the devil. That's strange but true. And the point is that God is in control here. He's in control even of the devil. Nothing comes into your life that God doesn't permit. And there's an ocean of theology behind that wave, and if it's hard to swallow, that's why it can be confusing. It raises all kinds of questions for us like, Why would God allow temptation to come into anyone's life, let alone Jesus' life? Well, we're helped here in answering that question when we realize that the word tempt in verse 1 in the Greek can also be translated test. And you might say, that doesn't make it any easier. (laughs) Why would God do that? Why would God test me? 
I don't like the sound of that. (laughs) Is he messing with me? Is he laughing at me when I fail? Is he wagging his head in disappointment? No, no, and no. Think about testing. Think about a test that is administered to you maybe in school. Why are you given a test? The purpose of testing is not to make you fail. Ask any good and loving teacher. The purpose of testing is to inspect your progress, to inspect your development, revealing on the one hand progress you've already made, which can be extremely encouraging. But also revealing on the other hand progress you may have yet to make which is extremely helpful. Testing, see, is intended to see if you're holding up to to help you grow and even to make you stronger. Let me give you an analogy. This won't be perfect, but hopefully hopefully it'll make the point. Think about your muscles and exercising them, all right? Exercising them is putting them to the test. It's putting them under demand, under pressure. Why do we do that? To make them stronger. I've got a, a friend at my gym named Michael. And he's like 20 years my senior. He is a physical specimen. He's who I want to be when I grow up physically. It's probably not going to happen, but the genetics just don't, probably not going to work out that way. But Michael has taken it upon himself to give me pointers at the gym. I don't see him do this with everyone, which makes you wonder, doesn't it? It's like, man. Probably just me, isn't it? Yeah. I love this guy. He's got a t-shirt. Um, he was wearing this the other day. Have you, have you seen the straight out of so-and-so t-shirts? You know, the slogans, which if you weren't into rap music in the late 90s, it's a riff on straight out of Compton. I just want to put it out there just in case you know and your kids are wearing something like that. You should know maybe the reference, right? Well, Michael's got this t-shirt, it's black, and it's got the sleeves are ripped off, of course, and it says, straight out of excuses, right? I mean, like, this is my guy. This is my guy. Well, I'm lifting weights one day a couple weeks ago, and he comes over to me, and he he looks at me, and he says, can I tell you something? I'm like, probably, you know? (laughs) You probably can. And he kind of gets up in my face, and he points at me, and he says, your muscles are lazy, I'm like, oh. He says, they love to do the least amount of work possible. And then he says, I've seen you in here several times doing that same lift in several, you know, the same ways. If you keep doing that, your muscles are just going to get used to it. They won't be tested anymore. See, they're not going to tear anymore and therefore mend more and grow stronger anymore. And so he shows me how to do it a little bit differently. He always does this after my third set. It's like... <laughs> Seriously, I swear I'm stronger than this, but not right now, right? (laughs) He shows me how to do it a little bit differently, put a little tweak on it, less weight, slower reps, holding it in place, contracting the muscle, holding it there, doing it that way sometimes, and then on other days, other weeks, coming back and doing it the way that I was. Why? To keep challenging my muscles, to keep testing them in order to see them continue to grow stronger. You're like, it's not working. I I don't know. We're, We're still working on that. But listen, testing makes us grow stronger. It reveals how far we've come. It reveals how far we have yet to go, and it makes us grow stronger. Testing does. Temptation does. 
And when we put that all together what we've been, with what we've been talking about so far, what we realize is that testing or temptation has three vantage points. Yours, right, where it's just coming at you, whatever the temptation is, whatever the testing is, we experience it as a real and challenging reality. Then there's Satan's vantage point, who is desiring to use it for evil who is desiring to cause division between you and your God and to cause you to doubt, to cause you to sin. And then there's God's vantage point. Who means it all for good? The sovereign one. Wants to reveal progress you've already made and reveal ground yet to gain and to help you grow stronger. Now, in our text today, there's three tests. There's three temptations that are put before Jesus, three temptations that we can learn from. The first temptation I'm going to call the temptation of provision. And each of these temptations is unique. Each of them reveals a tactic of the enemy. Each receives a response from Jesus, and each one we can apply to our lives. We're going to do that this morning. And actually, um, what we're going to try to do is learn what we can learn from Jesus' temptations and apply them to ourselves. The application doesn't come sort of one-to-one with the temptations. The applications that we're going to draw, each application could really be drawn from any one of them or all of them, but we're going to kind of spread them out and take them one at a time. Again, the first temptation is the temptation of provision. Look at your copy of God's Word, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Again, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Let's look first at the tactic here. We're told that Jesus has been in the wilderness now for 40 days and 40 nights. He's not just hanging out around the campfire. He's been fasting. He's been fasting. He's hungry. I'm sure he was. The tactic that the tempter deploys here is to attack Jesus at his point of greatest weakness, if we can even talk that way, his hunger. This is one of the devil's most obvious tactics, to hit weak spots first. How exactly does he tempt Jesus? He says, if you're the son of God, go ahead and turn these rocks into something to eat. Now, it's tempting to read that and think that the tempter is attacking Jesus' identity here. I actually don't think that's the case. The language seems to stress instead that what the tempter is doing is suggesting that Jesus actually has the power to satisfy his own needs. He's not saying, do this to prove your identity. He's attacking Jesus as a point of human weakness. Again, if we can call it that, his hunger And suggesting, oh, you're hungry? You're hungry, Jesus? Aren't you the Son of God? Why don't you just go ahead and take matters into your own hand? Now that's helpful. And we can relate to that ourselves, can't we? I've never been tempted to turn rocks into bread before. I've sure been tempted to take things into my own hands. To doubt God's provision in my life. 
to satisfy my own needs instead of relying on God to do that? The temptation of provision is intended by the enemy here to solicit the sin of distrusting God. That comes to all of us. I mean, none of us are immune to this temptation. The temptation to move away from a holy reliance upon our Father in heaven into an unholy independence, an unholy self-sufficiency to take matters into our own hands. Let me give you a nice concrete example here. Money. (laughs) If you just took a deep sigh, you know this might be helpful for you. Financial stress is a real thing. Anyone who says, you know, money doesn't really matter or there's more to life than money, sure welcome to come over and pay my bills, you know. But normal financial stress becomes crippling when you begin to distrust God and his provision. When you begin to distrust that he's got you. And no, that doesn't mean if you just trust more, he'll give you everything you want make you wealthy to where you never have to worry about money ever again. Instead, it redefines what it means to need, which is hard when there's so much we want and so much others have. Look at the birds of the air, Jesus is going to tell us in chapter 6. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they, he asks. Well, when the enemy attacks in this way, especially in a moment of weakness, we wonder, don't we? Am I more valuable to God than birds? I see him caring for others. I see him providing for others. Does he care about me? Surely if he did, he wouldn't put me through this test, trial, temptation, whatever you want to call it. That's one vantage point. It's yours. Feels very real, doesn't it? Then there's another. Satan perhaps is involved in that. Who wants to use financial stress, tempt you with financial stress to drive a wedge between you and God and cause you to sin by distrusting him. But what's God doing? Testing. Testing. Checking in on your progress. Revealing how it's going with trusting Him. Revealing, perhaps in our example, more ground to gain. Strengthening you. Your trusting muscles are lazy. They need exercise, maybe even in new ways to grow strong. Well, how does Jesus respond to this test? How does he respond to this temptation? He quotes scripture. Do you notice that? 
Verse 4 of our text is actually a quotation of an older text, a text that perhaps Jesus has been meditating on while he's been out there in the wilderness fasting. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 8, which in its original setting reads like this. This is God speaking to his people on the plains of Moab after their time in the wilderness, before entering into the promised land. This is what he says. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 days, these 40 years rather, in the wilderness. That was a slip up, wasn't it? There's some parallels going on between what Jesus is experiencing in the wilderness and what God's Old Testament people experienced in the wilderness. We'll come back to all of that. But he says, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you. What's the next word? Say it with me. Testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and he let you hunger. And he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know. Man does not live by bread alone. A man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And it's the last line there that Jesus quotes back in our text, but the context certainly shapes his and our understanding of it. It doesn't mean that we don't need food. It doesn't mean that we don't need money. It does mean we must trust God. He's our provider. We're not to seek to take things into our own hands or be crippled with anxiety by trying to, but instead to trust Him. And it's here in Jesus' response we can draw our first major point of application. It's this. Jesus is our model for how to resist temptation. Jesus is our model for how to resist temptation. When temptation comes into your life, especially at the point of weakness, when you're hungry, when you're tired, when you're lonely or wore out, when it's late at night, when a state of self-pity comes upon you perhaps and it breeds entitlement in you, it's real easy to take things into your own hands. Have you been there? Because <laughs> I have. I heard a pastor one time recently say, our desires for immediate satisfaction are some of the strongest impulses we experience. It doesn't have to be financial. It can be sexual. It can be greed. It can be control, satisfaction with food, numbing and escaping with drink. The temptation comes your way and you suddenly seize your own needs instead of trusting God. Jesus is your model for how to resist that. How did he resist it? How do you resist it? By leaning on God and trusting God's word when the demands of the world and the circumstances of life tempt you in another direction. When temptation comes, be like Jesus and ask yourself, what does God's word say? That presupposes that you know something about what God's word says, which is a good reminder of our necessity to be reading God's word over and over and over again and never stopping. Does it say in God's word that he's your provider? 
It does. Does it say in God's word that he's your protector? That he's your sustainer? That he's your satisfier? Do we have examples all throughout the Old Testament that illustrate these points? We do. That he's in control. It's all in here. That you don't have to numb out or escape because he's with you and he loves you and he cares for you and he's never going to leave you or forsake you. That he's got you. He's got this. He's got everything. Even if you die. You know that passage back in Deuteronomy 8, it goes on to talk about how God is bringing his people into a good land with brooks of water and fountains and springs flowing out of valleys and hills, a land of abundance, wheat, barley, fig trees, pomegranates, olive trees, honey. Deuteronomy 8 verse 10, and you shall eat and be full. Right before that he says you're going to lack nothing. You're going to eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land, the promised land that he has given them. A land that prefigures the final promised land of heaven for you and me. We can trust God with everything because even if he chooses not to provide something that we need even to survive, Even if we die, yet shall we live in heaven forever with him in a place where we will never lack anything ever again. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. Jesus is our model or how to resist temptation. That brings us to the second temptation, which I'll call the temptation of presumption. Presumption. It begins in verse 5. Matthew chapter 4, verse 5 reads like this. It says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Notice the tactic this time is different than the first. In the first temptation, the devil attacked Jesus at a point of weakness. That didn't work. Now he attacks him at a point of strength. Scripture itself. It's like a jujitsu move. And you notice here what the devil does. He quotes scripture. Psalm 91, in case you were wondering, and if you didn't know that, one of the things that you should realize is the devil knows the scripture better than you do. But he rips it from its context, using scripture to say whatever he wants it to say. That's a tactic of the enemy. Theologian Don Carson once said that his dad, who was a pastor, used to say that a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Meaning, you can prove anything from the Bible if you want to. You can take a collection of words, put them together and make it say what you want. You know people who do this, and I do too. They take one line of the Bible and they ignore the rest of the Bible, but that one line of the Bible proves their point right here. 
So someone will say, God is love, says so in the Bible. And if that's true, how could he ever condemn anyone? He would never judge anyone. He would never send anyone to hell. Listen, that's not what the Bible teaches on the whole. You say something like that, you're leaving stuff out. You haven't read the rest of this thing, have you? Or the love of God has been poured into our hearts. Look, it says that the love of God is poured into our hearts. And so if I love someone that I'm not married to, if I love someone even of the same sex as me, well, God must have put that in my heart. It says love of God has been poured into our heart. Again, that's, that's not what the Bible teaches. You can't build... A biblical sexual ethic from one line that proves your point that's taken out of context. People over the years have used Scripture wrongly to justify all kinds of stuff. Slavery. Dominary male leadership in the home. Sinful sexual behavior. I love how commentator Frederick Dale Bruner addresses this and he says... When one scripture is used to encourage behavior that most scripture or the heart of scripture discourages, we can tell we are in enemy territory. It's a tactic of the enemy. We must take all of scripture if we're going to take any of scripture. We must use scripture to interpret scripture and we must submit our lives to scripture, all of scripture. And we have to do that with the balance of Scripture. Don Carson also says you can talk about being saved by grace until you have so much grace that you no longer have any holiness. And you can talk about holiness until you have so much legalism that you no longer have any grace. We've got to take it all, not just a line or two like the devil does here in his second temptation. The devil uses and abuses Scripture here for his second temptation to try to get Jesus to presume upon God the Father. He's saying, oh, you want to trust God by leaning on His Word? Let's put that to the test. Throw yourself down off of this temple here. God will catch you. He'll command his angels to catch you. He says right here that he, that he will. He'll have to. He'll never let the Son of God hit the rocks. At its root, it's the temptation to test God by presuming upon God. Relating that to ourselves, perhaps, is the temptation to do whatever you please because you know that you're a child of God. Taking advantage, if you will, of your privileged position. It's saying God is obligated to do something for you, catch you, in Jesus' case, maybe also in yours. Think about it this way. If you go into a self-destructive free fall, thinking God's got me, I, I, I can do whatever I want. What are you doing? You're presuming upon his grace. It's the sin of presumption. It says, I'm saved. I'm a Christian. I'm saved by grace. It doesn't matter what I do. God will forgive me. He has to. If you ever find yourself thinking like that, 
you're in very dangerous enemy territory. This is real, isn't it? I mean, aren't there times when you rationalize what it is that you want to do that you know you're not supposed to do because you've read it in scriptures? Aren't there times when you're tempted and and you know you should resist, but the enemy tempts you into believing you can free fall just for a bit, self-destruct just for a bit, God will catch you. I'll tell you how it sounds in my life. You've worked so hard. You know, you, you poured out so much, loads of pressure. Nobody else, nobody understands the burdens that you're carrying, you know? Go ahead. No one will know. Oh, sure, God will see it. But he understands. He'll forgive you. You deserve it. You've earned it. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Right? You know, if you listen to the lies of the enemy like that for too long, it starts to sound like the truth. Even as Christians, we can get used to, we can get so used to succumbing to a temptation that we cease to see it as a temptation. We can get so used to giving into a sin that we fail to anymore even call it a sin. But listen, a lot of stuff in the Bible called sin. Gluttony, it's called a sin. Drunkenness, last time I checked, still in there. Still a sin. Stealing, even just a little bit, is a sin. Gossip is still a sin. Slander is still a sin. Jealousy, greed, lying, coveting, envy, anger outbursts, lust, pride. Things that in, in, in some instances have become, even within Christian world, sort of culturally acceptable or personally acceptable. If you're hearing me right now and you're thinking, that one's not that big a deal. God forgives me. He understands. You, my friend, are in dangerous enemy territory. It's a tactic of his to get you to presume upon God's grace when you need to repent. Jesus, when he faced this temptation, how did he respond? Verse 7, calmly, directly, resolutely, Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It's another quotation from Deuteronomy. This time it's Deuteronomy 6 where God actually says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Where God's Old Testament people demanded water from him to see whether God was really amongst them or not. Jesus is pointing out here that testing God is not trusting God. That's a good word for us. It's a good check to the balance of the gospel that tells us that we are saved by grace alone, and yet we are never to presume upon God's grace. There's a broad application for us I want to draw out at this time. Again, it's not 
just specifically from the second temptation. It's drawn from, it can be drawn from any one of the three, but it's this. Jesus sympathizes with us in our temptations. So the first one was that Jesus is a model for us how to resist temptation. Second, now, Jesus sympathizes with us in our temptations. He's been there. He's done that. He's suffered the temptations of the enemy. He's been hit where he's weak. He's been hit where he's strong. You have too. And Jesus identifies with that. And because he identifies with that, he's able to be your help when you're tempted. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Here's what that means for you. When temptation comes your way, Jesus is never looking at you saying, suck it up. He knows. He knows exactly what it's like. He's never shaking his head and thinking, I can't believe she isn't stronger by now. He knows. He sympathizes. Even more, he helps. The writer of Hebrews also says that because Jesus himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Meaning, you can cry out to him. You can call upon him. He'll never say, don't bother me with that right now. Take care of it on your own. You ought to be able to handle this by now. He's able to help because he's been tempted. He's willing to help because he sympathizes with our weaknesses. Well, if temptation one is a temptation of provision and temptation two is a temptation of presumption, keeping with our P's, Temptation three is the temptation of power. Look at verse eight. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. The temptation here is the temptation to power. Satan knows who Jesus is. He knows he's the son of God. He may even know that God desires to invest all authority in heaven and earth to him. And so he takes him on top of a mountain. He shows him all the kingdoms. And look what it says. And their glory, their splendor, their magnificence. He, he's tempting Jesus with what God will ultimately give to Jesus after his death and resurrection, but he's tempting him with it now. The glory, the honor, the stature, the notoriety. I'll give it all to you, Jesus. He's offering him, do you see it? A cross-free shortcut. A way to bypass the cross. Shortcut the grave. Which, of course, would undercut the plan of salvation for you and me. And all it takes is a momentary bow. The verb is in the sense that implies a single act. Just one momentary bow. Not your whole life, just this once. There are times in our lives, aren't there, where we're tempted to take the easy way? Maybe convince ourselves, yeah, God probably doesn't approve of this, but the ends justify the means. Maybe a shortcut to physical intimacy with someone you're not married to. We're going to get married. What's the big deal? 
shortcut to a promotion or financial gain by sacrificing a specific Christian conviction, a shortcut of avoiding persecution or scorn or friendship rejection by hiding what you really believe, not permanently, just for a moment, just a momentary bow, even a shortcut to glory. That sounds strange. Let me explain. Inside each of us is a desire to be known, a desire to be something, to be someone well-respected, well-thought-of, well-regarded for our accomplishments, noticed, fated, wanted, appreciated. We want people to know us. We want to feel important. We want fame, some, some of us. We want accolades for others to say, oh, you're so amazing. You're such an amazing person. You might not put it exactly that way. But when the year turns over and you find yourself thinking, I really haven't done anything significant with my life. Or no one sees me. No one knows me. No one cares. Or when you post online and then you check the number of likes over and over and over again. When you do something just to gain attention or when you hide in the lonely shadows of inattention. Listen, you're going to be someone in heaven. You and I, the Bible says, will be glorified. That doesn't just mean sinless. It means that. But it also means weighty, important to him. You're going to be known, you're going to be perfectly respected with nothing to hide and nothing to prove. Wanted. Perfectly attended to with the perfect affection of your perfect father. And there's a temptation to try to get that now by a shortcut. Living in a way that seeks to glorify yourself here and now. Drawing attention to yourself craving attention for yourself. Maybe even from an attention deficit growing up, that's real. Seeking to win the approval of others, impressing them, convincing them you're important, that you're someone, to gain a little fame, to gain a, a little notoriety. It's tempting, isn't it? I know it, you know it. Jesus knows it too. How did he respond to this third kind of temptation? Look at his response, verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. Or... <laughs> As Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message, beat it, Satan. I like that one a lot. For it is written, and then once more quoting Deuteronomy 6, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. How did Jesus respond? With unwavering obedience wholehearted devotion, worship, single-minded service, God at the center of everything. He held up, didn't he? And that's important because you and I don't always hold up under temptation, do we? That brings us to our third and final point of application to draw from the temptations of Jesus, and it's this. Jesus perfectly resisted temptation on our behalf. 
I'm not sure if you notice it or not, but there's something that's been going on in Matthew's account of the gospel so far. There's echoes of the Old Testament all over it, and in particular echoes from the Exodus to the Promised Land. We saw it a little bit when Jesus went down into Egypt a few weeks ago and they came back out, just like Old Testament Israel went down into Egypt and was led back out. I mentioned it earlier, but notice it again. Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit for 40 days and 40 nights, just like Israel was led by God into the wilderness for 40 years. Both Jesus' hunger and Israel's hunger taught a lesson. Both were tested. Only one held up. Jesus. The point? Jesus is the truer and better Israel who, like Israel, was led into the wilderness and faced adversity and yet trusted God, did not test God, but instead stayed the course with wholehearted devotion. Jesus perfectly resisted temptation. He perfectly obeyed. He was tempted in in every way and yet without sin. And that is good news for you and me. This is the part of the good news of the gospel which we sometimes summarize as saying Jesus lived the perfect life that you were supposed to live but couldn't. This is the second half of Romans 5.19 where we read, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, talking about Adam there in the garden, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Talking about Jesus there. Church, Jesus perfectly resisted temptation on your behalf. And through trusting him, through our union together with him, his obedience, his holding up is counted as yours. Now, there's a song that we sing, captures the threefold application of this passage really well. It's called, Lord, I Need You. Listen, listen to this. It says, we, this is what we sing. It says, Teach my song to rise to you when temptation comes my way. That's what we want, isn't it? We want our song. We want our soul to rise to Jesus when temptation comes our way. He's our model for how to resist. He sympathizes with us and and helps us when we're tempted. But then there's also the next line that we need sometimes. Which reminds us, when I cannot stand, when you fail a test, when you, because you're still sinful and not yet sinless, succumb even to the temptation of the enemy, when I cannot stand, where do we fall? On him. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. He perfectly resisted temptation on your behalf. You're safe in him. And so we sing, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Jesus, our great example.
our great high priest who sympathizes with us, our great help and friend, but even more, our hope and stay. The one who perfectly obeyed on our behalf, our righteousness. It's only in his holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.